So let's read together, shall we, from Mark chapter 6, and we'll read from verse number 14 all the way to verse number 20, 29. It says there, I'm reading from a New American Standard, it says, And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah, and one, others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. And we trust God will have blessing to the reading of his word. Let's give thanks and ask for his help, shall we? Father in heaven, this morning we come before you and we would ask you, as the psalmist did, that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Father, we pray that you would revive us according to your word. That you would strengthen us as a church according to your word. Father, we pray that you would teach us according to your word. Father, teach us your ways and your precepts, your statutes, that we might walk in them and we might be pleasing to you. Father, we ask you for your help this morning. Father, we pray the Spirit of God would lead us into all truth and teach us his word. We ask you, Lord, to keep the distractions away. Father, help us to put aside thoughts of the weak and other things going on in our lives and to focus entirely upon the scriptures and the Lord Jesus. And we ask you these things in his name. Amen. Two men set before us in the text. Two very fearful men. One of them feared man, but not God. The other one feared God and did not fear man. One man and everything anybody living in this world could possibly want. He was born into the most wealthy and powerful family of his nation. He had great wealth. He had great power. He could even have power over other people's lives. He had connections to the world in which he lived, the movers and shakers of his world, to priestly families, to governors, to kings, even to Caesar. He had everything anybody could want. The other man had little of anything that is desired in this world. 
He grew, was born uh, to elderly parents who were godly and faithful. He grew up in wilderness obscurity. He never entered the profession of his father. He never accomplished any great works or feats. He did not travel widely. He lived as an almost wild man in the wilderness, surviving on the crudest form of food and drink. And for a short time, for a very short time, he rose to great fame. He preached the message of God to the people. He was a man, you could say, of impeccable character. Nobody could bring charges against him. He was arrested without charge. He was imprisoned for no crime that he committed. And eventually he was brutally murdered to satisfy a jealous woman's hatred and envy. Two men, two fearful men, one man greatly fearing other men and one man fearing God. So why do we need to hear a message from this passage? And i got to admit, as I was studying through it and reading through it, thinking, you know, the Lord Jesus isn't even mentioned in the passage. What do we do with this? And it was suggested maybe just skip over it and go over to the next passage and keep going on. But I thought, no, Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inspired and wrote this passage. He wrote this story, and he included it in the gospel. Therefore, God has a message for us from this text. I opened up Warren Wearsby. He has a book called The uh, Expository Commentary on the New Testament. And I opened up and I read the heading for John or Mark chapter 6. I thought, ooh. And I closed the book again because the heading gave me an idea. I didn't read the rest of it. And I put it aside. And I started thinking through, hey, wait a minute. And he had the idea of unbelief. And I thought, that's one idea. And the more I started looking and reading and thinking about these two men, and I realized that Mark is giving us an incredible insight into the characters of of these two men who are very much different, very opposite from each other. So we want to learn this morning. We want to view the character of these two men. I want us to look at Herod and gain some insights into the working of this man's mind. And want us to see and be warned lest we slide down the same slippery soap that Herod did. He knew the truth. He chose to live in open sin. He rejected the truth. He hardened his heart against the truth despite repeated warnings from God's messenger. He refused the grace of God and he refused to fear God, sadly fearing men instead. And that fear ultimately caused him to do the unthinkable thing and murder an innocent man. Some of us are already on that slippery slope. Some of us are hearing the truth, but we're rejecting it and pushing it away. Some of us have hardened our hearts against it. And listen, rejecting the grace of God extended through the word of God. How many of us have opened our Bibles and begun to read a text and you hear the voice of the Spirit of God in your heart and in your mind saying, you know you need to do this or that. There's something, and you can't escape it. I remember as a young guy reading my Bible, and I, I had committed a sin, and I had let it go, and the Spirit of God reminded me again and again and again. And I was opening up my Bible, and for some reason, the Bible made no sense to me whatsoever. As much as I tried to read it, all I could hear when I opened the Bible was the same thing. You need to deal with that sin. You need to confess that sin. You need to deal with it and get beyond it and move beyond it, but you've got to deal with it. And it wasn't until I finally bent the knee and did it that I began to read and understand more of the Bible once again. I want us to see the character of John as it's described in the passage. He was a godly man. He was a holy and a righteous man. He was a man of both grace and integrity. He was a man who lived in the grace of God. John the Baptist feared God, but he did not fear man. Now, the problem is there's a bit of a danger here. 
The danger is that we will wind up, we will all wind up hearing a moralistic message on John, urging us to be more like John. You know the old song, dare to be a Daniel, right? Or just be like John. We could do that with the text. But the problem is we're not here to do that with the text. We're here to proclaim and preach Jesus Christ. Because that's how men are changed and conformed into the character and the image of Christ. So I don't want to do that. I want us to see that John the Baptist is not the hero of the story. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, is the hero of the story. And we're going to see how that unfolds at the very end. I want us to walk away from the passage with the resolve to fear God the way that John feared God. I want us to stand alongside of John and the other great men of faith in the Bible and with them standing beside us, turn and look up and see Christ and learn to walk in the fear of God as these men men did. I want us to walk away with the same fear that John did. Well, to give you a little bit of historical background about Philip, or sorry, Herod and... uh, Herodias and the whole story. Uh, Herod Antipas, that's his full name, was the middle son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had three sons. Herod the Great had ten wives in total. And he went through a little bit of a routine. He would marry them, he would divorce them, and he would behead them. And no joking, if you, uh, if I was thinking to myself as I was reading the story, the background of Herod and the Herodian family, if you wanted ideas on how to write a great soap opera, just read their family story. It's just shot full of murder, intrigue, incest, all kinds of stuff. It's, it's horrible. I was going to give you a bunch more. I thought, no, they don't need to hear all that yuck stuff. But Herod Antipas was married to a Nabataean king, Aratus's daughter. And one day, Herod and I don't know if he was with her or not, went to Rome and he saw his brother Philip there. And Philip had married his niece. It's a Herodian family. That's the kind of thing they did. Pretty gross. And Herod, the Bible says, he fell madly in love with her and he decided he wanted to have her at all costs. And so he divorced his wife, Eratus' daughter, who immediately fled for home because she knew the history of, uh, you know, marry, divorce, behead, and didn't want to be beheaded. So she left. And Herod took this woman, Herodias, and married her and brought her back to Galilee and Judea. It calls him, I think it's very interesting. Do you notice what Mark calls him in verse number 14? He says, and King Herod. King Herod was no king at all. In fact, he was what they call a tetrarch. And so Herod, his father, owned a, was ruled and controlled and was king of a great area of Galilee. But the, Rome, the area was all controlled by the Romans. And when Herod died, he knew his sons were not the greatest of men. So he split up his, his area and among his three sons. And Rome had to confer on them the kingship, which Herod Antipas, this man, never got. He was only ever called a tetrarch. The area was not his to control. He just ruled and governed over it. So he divorced his wife, he comes back, and John begins to preach against him. Well, Herod's pride eventually was his own downfall because King Aretas, the father-in-law of his first wife, got really angry about the way his daughter had been treated. He marched into Galilee and that whole area that uh, Herod controlled, and he wiped him out in a massive battle. He severely defeated King Herod, or Tetrarch Herod, I guess you should say. And Herod and his Herodias, his wife was was such a jealous, insane kind of woman that what she did was she said, you know what, Herod, your brother got given the kingship by the Caesar. Let's go to Rome and we'll go to Rome and we'll ask Caesar to give you a kingship as well, to crown you king. 
So they went all the way to Rome, and they walked in. They stood before the siege and said, Hi, Caesar, this is my wife Herodias. Uh, We believe that you should give me the kingship over all of Galilee. And Caesar said, Not only am I not going to give you the kingship, I'm going to banish you to Spain. And so he lost everything, and he wound up dying in a battle uh, in the foothills of Spain. That's the story of this man's life. He was a very prideful, a very uh, fearful man. He feared men. As you read the story, you get the sense of this unstable, kind of weird guy that he was driven by different people, and he wasn't able to exercise his own control, even though he wanted to be the big man on campus. But he was a man who feared men, but did not fear God. Well, I want you to see his character as we go through the text. And uh, so Herod, number one, was an ungodly man who failed to fear God. So firstly, Herod knew the truth. He knew the truth because God brought it to him. God, in immense grace, brought a messenger along to rebuke him and Herodus for their sin and and call them to repentance. The Bible says in 6 verse 18, uh, in my Bible it says, Herod had a grudge against him. Sorry, verse 18. John had been saying to Herod, uh, in the original Greek tense, it's more like he had kept on saying. So he didn't just say it once. He said it again and again and again. He kept coming back to Herod. Herod, you've got to listen. You've got to change your ways. God brought him the truth, but Herod knew it. He understood the truth. In 6 and verse 20, the Bible says that Herod heard what John had said. And the word has the idea of an emphasis on a clear understanding of truth. So Herod hears what God is saying to him through John the Baptist, and he knew it. He understood the truth of God that had been presented to him. And the point for us is this. All of us are sinners deserving God's judgment, but God first in grace brings us his truth. You go back through the Old Testament, some of you are reading through your Bibles on a yearly program, you go read through those old historical books and you'll see again and again and again the people of Israel fall into sin. And what does God do? He raises up a prophet who comes and he preaches the good news of God. He tells him, repent of your ways, turn back to God, or God will bring judgment. And Herod's no different. God sends him a messenger to tell him the truth, and he hears the truth, but he rejects it. So God in first in grace brings us his truth. Grace always precedes God's judgment. Something to keep in the back of your mind. Grace always precedes God's judgment. But it's a great danger to reject God's truth when it's proclaimed. Rejecting God's truth is a refusal to fear God. And that's why we say Herod feared man, but he did not fear God. Secondly, Herod was a sinful man. History describes Herod's divorcing his wife without grounds provided by the law of God. There were grounds in the law for Uh, divorcing your wife and so on. There are even grounds in the law of God for marrying like your brother's wife after your brother has died. It's called a leveret marriage. But we know that Philip had a daughter named Salome. We also know that Herod's first wife, his rightful wife, was still alive and well. There was no grounds for divorce. So he has acted against God's law. He's a sinful man. 6 and verse 18 describes their incestuous relationship with Herod's brother's wife, his half-niece. That's weird on a whole bunch of different levels, I know. But he was a sinful man. He, He rejected what God had told him. Herod had heard, he had understood, he had refused to repent and obey. And the point for us is this. Listen. What might once be done in ignorance becomes sin when it is done in knowledge of the truth. 
Herod, I have no doubt in my mind, he knew what he was doing. He knew he was breaking God's law. He knew he was committing all kinds of sin. And he went ahead in a lustful, obsessed way to have what he wanted, even though it meant breaking God's command. Herod knew the law. He understood it. The principle is this. What might once be done ignorance becomes sin when it's done in knowledge of the truth. Now, it's unlikely Herod didn't know. But God in grace, he brings revelation of his truth to us first. The knowledge of the truth reveals sin to be what it is. It reveals it as sin. I know different folks who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and they're involved in a sinful lifestyle. They have no idea of Scripture. They don't know anything about the Bible. And they're carrying on. They're just trying to work it out. And as they become to realize, oh, you mean you can't do that as a Christian? No, the Bible says this. And they go, oh, okay. And immediately they put it away, and they stop doing it. They repent of sin as they become aware of it. And that's the story of our Christian lives, isn't it? It should be. That as we become aware of things that are sin against God, we repent of them, we put them away, and we stop doing them in order to live in obedience to God. But Herod instead was a very sinful man. Thirdly, Herod was an unrepentant man. We've looked at that already, how he rejected and pushed away God's truth. He would not, he would not submit to the law of God. He would not deal with his sin and put it away. And the point is this, rejection of God's truth brings a hardened and unrepentant heart. The more we resolve to disobey the truth, the greater our continual disobedience of it. Think back in the Bible history. You've got Cain, you've got Pharaoh, you've got King Saul, and you've got Herod. And they all tell the same story. God brings them knowledge of the truth, and they reject it and refuse to have any part of it. And God eventually turns them over, and their rejection of God and his truth, eventually God rejects them. Cain was rejected by God for refusing to repent. Pharaoh was rejected by God for refusing to obey. And Saul was rejected by God for continual disobedience. And Herod was no different from them all continuously rejecting and pushing away truth, God will eventually reject us. Read through the book of the Kings and the Chronicles. And look how many times it says, if we follow him with all of our hearts, God will be with us and strengthen us and help us and so on. It's repeated over and over again. So Herod was an unrepentant man. Fourthly, Herod was a perplexed man. You say, what, is, what does that mean? What's a perplexed man? Well, it's a very interesting little point that, that Mark makes in the story because what it means is this. Herod, and the way I see it is that Herod has John arrested. He puts him in prison, probably in the basement of his palace. And at different times, Herod goes down to the basement and he pulls up a chair outside the bars. And, and Herod's sitting on one side of the bars and John's sitting on the other side of the bars. And Herod says, tell me some more of the story, John. And John begins to tell him the story, and Herod loves to listen to him, but he's very perplexed. The point is that he cannot comprehend the truth that John is laying out before him. And we'll look in a minute about John's grace and how he carried on, even though this man had unjustly put him in prison for what he'd been doing. But Herod's listening, and he's enjoying it, but you can see the frustration on Herod's face as he hears the truth, but he's perplexed because he cannot comprehend it. You say, what's the point? The point for us is this. Failure to be obedient to truth prevents comprehension of further truth. 
It's like reading my Bible that time, sitting there, going through and reading the same chapter over and over again, and I can't get my head around it. I can't figure out what the point is, what it's trying to say to me. All I can hear instead is the voice of the Spirit of God in my head saying, you need to deal with that sin you've left undealt with. And it isn't until I turn in submission and humility to God and deal with that sin, and then the scripture begins to become alive and I can understand it again. I'm absolutely convinced. That's why Herod just couldn't comprehend what John was saying anything further because he had not dealt with and dealt with his sin to begin with. Fifthly, Herod was a sensual man. You say, how do you see that? Well, history describes a lustful obsession such that Herod abandoned his wife for his half-niece. In Mark 6, it talks about how Salome, that's the daughter of Herodias, comes in and she does this incredible dance. And as you read through this, the text, you, what you, the sense you get is the dance is so pleasing and so entrancing to these men. They're all kind of standing there with their, their mouth open. They're staring at this girl. And Herod, without giving any thought to what he's saying, he speaks. He blurts out this thing. What's he saying, 22? Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to the half of my kingdom. He's almost repeating word for word what the king back in the day of Esther said, right? King Xerxes. And what he's doing is this immediate, impulsive, extravagant promise that he makes to this young girl. He's so entranced by the dance that she's done that he doesn't think straight at all. He just makes this oath and promise. You realize, by the way, it's not his kingdom. He can't give any of it away. It belongs to Rome. If we're getting back to Rome that he gave half of it to some dancing girl because she pleased him, the Caesar's not going to be happy about that no matter what. He's a sensual man. The sense you get is he's entranced by the nature of her dance, and he speaks without any real thought or consideration. Herod was driven by his senses and his lusts. And sixthly, Herod was also a very fearful man. If you were to go to Matthew 14 and verse 5, you would read there how Herod feared the crowd. He wanted to kill John the Baptist, but he feared the crowd. So instead, he arrested him and put him in prison. In Mark 6, verse 20, Herod feared John the Baptist. And you say, why would Herod fear John the Baptist? And I'm absolutely convinced that there is a fear by the ungodly as they observe the godly person's life. It strikes fear into their hearts because they realize there's something in their lives that they cannot comprehend, control, or understand. And Herod was afraid of John the Baptist. Herod was afraid of the stable, resolute behavior of a man who feared and believed and obeyed God. In Mark 6.26, Herod was afraid of losing face with his guests. The idea was he makes this great oath and promise... And, oh, kind of dawns on him. Wait a minute. Uh, And then she comes back. And he's almost terrified to know what it is that she wants to ask for. And she says, give me the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And there's this Herod standing there, and he likes John. He likes to listen to him. He knows his wife's grudge and hatred of this man. And now, because all the dinner guests, and you can almost see the scene, you know. They're all lying on those couches around the middle. And there's Herod standing in the middle. And Salome standing in front of him, and she says, give me the head. And he kind of, you can see him looking around at the men around the table. And he realized, if he doesn't give her what she's asked for, he will lose incredible face before all of his friends. And Herod, in fear of the men around him, of losing face, he gives her what she asked for. Herod was a fearful man. 
The story of Herod is a tragedy of an ungodly man who feared men, not God. It's a tragedy because God, in immense grace, gave him repeated opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness. Herod died a fearful, ungodly man because he rejected the grace of God that was available to him. What about the other man? What about John? John the Baptist was a very godly man. And there's so much more we could draw on from other texts in the Bible to, to describe John. But I wanted to stay with Mark, mostly with Mark, and observe a couple of things about him. Number one, first we know that John was a holy and a righteous man. Mark 6 and verse 20, Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. He, John was the kind of guy who lived a pure, godly, undefiled lifestyle. Holiness describes that which is pure and undefiled before God. It describes something that is devoted to God, devoted to God's service, devoted to God's glory, devoted to God's use. In the Old Testament, you go back to the story of the tabernacle and all the different furnishings and bits and pieces, they would go through once a year with the blood and they would sprinkle blood on everything to set it apart and make it holy unto the Lord. What does that mean? It means it was dedicated to God's use and God's service and God's glory. John is described by Herod as a holy man. He lived a holy and a godly lifestyle. Listen, men and women who fear God strive to live a holy life. You want to live in the fear of the Lord? You better go through your bookshelf and your movie closet. You better go through your life and look and see what is defiling you and making you unclean before God. All of us. Holiness is that which is pure and undefiled. Men and women who fear God strive to live a holy life. Secondly, John was a righteous man. Notice again, same verse, Mark 6 and verse 20. He was a holy and a righteous man. Righteous describes his state before God. One of the ways we know for an absolute certainty that, that John was a man of faith is because he's described as a righteous man. There's no other way before God that he can have that state of righteousness unless he has faith in God. He lives by faith. He's a righteous man. He preached righteousness. He preached repentance from sin. He preached living a godly life. Remember the story? Uh, the soldiers come down. And he's talking to him on the side of the bank of the, of the Jordan River. And he says, go and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? It means simply this. Go away and live the lifestyle, live in obedience that is in consistency with a repentance from sin. Listen, men and women, you and I that fear God must live righteous lives. Lives that are clean and pure and holy. Lives that are consistent with the repentance of sin and are consistent with the God who has called us to live and walk before him. Thirdly, John faithfully preached the truth. If you go to Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, and John 1, they all describe John the Baptist. And he faithfully preached the truth to Herodians and soldiers, rich and poor, all Judea, all Jerusalem, all the Pharisees. John preached to Herod and Herodias, and he didn't preach a crowd-pleasing sermon to those guys to keep himself out of trouble. He faithfully preached the truth. He did it all in preparation for the coming Messiah. John faithfully fulfilled his ministry, even knowing when it was time for him to step out and step away from ministry. He must increase, I must decrease, is what John said. Fourthly, John was a man of integrity. He carried on. He continued the same message with Herod even when he was in prison. And you know what integrity means? 
means simply this. You are what you are, no matter who's looking and who's watching and who's around. And John could be described very quickly and very easily. He was a man of integrity. He did what God had called him to do, no matter where God put him at that particular moment. Whether it was in a prison or in a bank or in a wilderness, he was there. He preached with integrity. Men and women who fear God's, we live lives of integrity. If you want a good explanation, a good rundown of what integrity means, read Psalm 15. I think it's six short verses, and it describes beautifully what integrity is. John was a man of integrity. Fifthly, John feared God and not man. In Matthew 3, verse 7, he rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees. He called them the brood of vipers. In Luke 3.19, John reprimanded Herod and Herodias. The proof of John's fear of God is seen by the fact that he did not hold back in his faithful declaration of the truth. He was more afraid, if you like, of not fulfilling his ministry before God than the offense it would cause if he did. In other words, he was more afraid of God than he ever was afraid of man. So he told him exactly what God told him to do. I'm convinced that even having every worldly benefit to gain by softening his message to Herod, he did not do so. He stood by what he believed, and he preached what he believed, and he lived what he believed. The life of holiness and godliness, when there's no cost involved, John carried on living it. It's one thing to stand firm and preach when it costs us nothing. It's entirely different to stand firm and preach when it's going to cost us everything. And John was that man. John feared God. He did not fear man. Herod tragically feared man, but he did not fear God. John died at the executioner's sword for his faithfulness. Listen again. We've got to be very careful. We don't preach John the Baptist. We're here to preach Jesus Christ. John was an ordinary man. He was a sinner just like Herod and just like us. He was in need of salvation from the wrath of God, just like Herod and just like us. John needed to trust God for salvation, no less than we do and no less than Herod did. The great difference between these two men in the text, John and Herod, was one other person, and that's, of course, the person of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen. We read stories like John. We see his integrity. We see his faithfulness, and we go, you know, I just I want to be like that. You say, what's the secret to living the life that John lived? And I'll give it to you exactly like this. It's not his heritage. It wasn't the fact that he had godly parents. You read to the Old Testament kings, you see godly king, ungodly son. Godly king, ungodly son. Your parents have got nothing to do with it. The lack of godly parents or the presence of godly parents has nothing to do with whether or not you will live a godly lifestyle. It has nothing to do with his monastic wilderness lifestyle. Some guys have the idea they go off into the wilderness completely by themselves, alone with God. They will be more God than the guys around them. It had nothing to do with that either. Yes, he could be alone with God. Yes, that's a great thing. I'm not discounting that. But I'm saying that's not the secret to how he lived fearing God. It's not his preaching. It's not his ministry. It's got almost nothing to do with John himself. John's unwavering life of godliness is only by God's grace. We got to get a hold of that. The danger is the way we think is we start thinking it's all about us striving. There is a striving for us to do, but not on our own, not in our own strength and not by ourselves. By God's saving grace, John was filled with the Holy Spirit just as surely as we are who have come to faith in Christ. 
by God's grace, John was repentant of his sin, just as we must certainly continue all through our lives of repenting and putting away sin. By God's grace, John was looking for the Messiah. Even in his doubting moment, he sent word to Jesus. He said, are you the one or should we look for someone else? In other words, if you're not the one, I'm, I'm still looking. I want to I know him. And, this, and you say, well, does that mean he had a lack? Is what happened to John? Did he lose his faith at the end? The answer is no, I don't think so at all. I think John understood the Messiahship and the kingdom of heaven as the great conquering reign of the son of David, the king. And Jesus sends word back saying, hey, you know what? The deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised, the lepers are cleansed, the possessed are cast out. The kingdom of God is here. We saying the kingdom of God's here. It's not happening in that triumphant, conquering way yet. And they both understood the kingdom of God from two slightly different perspectives. And both perspectives are covered in the book of Isaiah. But look at what John's doing. He's saying, if you're not the one, I want to look for the one who is. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm the one. And I'm convinced that John died, his faith sound and firm as the day he began. But why? How did he do that? By God's grace in his life, John was looking and longing for the Messiah, just as we surely today. You longing for Jesus to come back? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 47 years of age on this Friday. I'm, trust me, I'm longing for the Lord to come back because this is how bad it feels at 47. I can't imagine 57 or 67 or anything like that. No offense to those who are that age intended at all. Yeah, you're only as old as you feel, right? So there you go. But you know what? The older I get, seriously, the more I read Scripture, the more I spend time before the Lord, I can't wait to see Him. I'm longing for the day that Jesus will come. And we'll be caught up to be with Him, His people, forever with Him, always able to see Him and enjoy His presence. When you're younger, it's, it's a little easier to say, well, a little further off. You're engaged to be married, you think, yeah, after I get married, it'll be okay. We think that way. You know what? John was looking for the Messiah. By God's grace, he was looking and longing to see the Messiah. Listen, by God's grace alone, we must be the people who are looking and longing to see our Savior. By God's grace, John was living a holy and a righteous life. There's no other way, by the way. There's no other way that we will live a life that is pleasing to God than by the strength that is in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. That's the only way. You strive on your own strength. You strive outside of the grace of God and you've made it a work. And as soon as you make it a work, it's a filthy rag in God's sight. It's all by the grace of God, by God's grace, by God's enabling grace. John was obeying God's call, just as we too must be faithfully obeying God's call. By God's persevering grace, John finished the race all the way to the end. John was a God-fearing man only because of God's grace. It's all of God's grace. It's not about us. It's all about the unmerited favor of God. It's the goodness of God poured out on us this week. Going through my week, I had one verse come to mind again and again, and it's in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, and it says this, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I thought, how does that work, Lord? 
And I started thinking about what, what grace is and realizing that it is the unmerited favor of God. I look at my own life, I look at my sin, and I realize I was a filthy, disgusting sinner before God. He had no reason because of me to turn towards me. He looked down at me and said, there's a disgusting sinner. And for no other reason that I want to show him my goodness and my grace, I will turn towards him and I will send him the message of the gospel and he will believe and I will save him and he will realize it's all because of my grace. How do you be strong in the grace of God? realizing every single thing that you have in Christ is purely because God was kind to you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You couldn't if you tried. But God, in amazing grace, just says, I'll give it to you. It's the goodness of God poured out on us, the undeserving. It's God's grace purchased on the cross at the highest, most precious price that could ever be paid, Jesus' blood. It's God's grace that is lavished on us. It's God's grace that saves us. It's God's grace that enables us and strengthens us. How are you doing? How are you going to live a life like John's life? It's not by focusing on John and trying to be like John. It's first by receiving that grace that God pours out towards you. Second, it's by striving in God's grace to be obedient. Yes, you better get it right. There is a part for us to play. And that part is that we strive to be obedient because God has had favor on us. It's by resting in God's grace when, we, when things go pear-shaped. Things go pear-shaped. I've discovered that. <laughs> There's one phrase that the Aussies came up with that I really like, pear-shaped. It just says, when everything goes wrong, we rest in God's grace. On the flip side, when everything goes right, we stop and we praise the glory of the God of grace who enabled it to go right. Herod was an ungodly man who feared man and not God. Herod was sinful, unrepentant, and fearful of man. And because he feared man, not God, Herod died and lost everything. He lost his kingdom reign, so to speak. He lost his soul. He lost it all. John was a godly man who feared God and not men. John was faithful, holy, righteous, and fearful of God. Herod was extended grace by God, but he refused it. John received the grace of God calling him, and he obeyed it. The question for us that lies before us this morning, as you look at these two men's lives, are we living in open sin? I can't answer that question for you, but you sure can. And immediately the Holy Spirit will point to that thing that you're living in that you need to deal with. Number two, are we hearing the truth about God's grace? Number three, are we striving? Are we, sorry, are we refusing the grace of God or are we receiving it? You've got to answer that question for yourself. Are we resting in his grace when things go wrong and are we praising the God of all grace when things go right? How are you living your life? Are you living in the fear of God or are you living in the fear of men? And trust me, it's, it's a slippery sliding slope to start to fear men and stop fearing God. You cannot do both, by the way. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then John's going to leave us in one more song. Loving Father, again, we give you thanks for your grace. And Father, looking at these two men's lives, Herod and John, Father, it's easy for us to pull ourselves up a little bit and look down our nose at Herod and think, well, I would never be like him.
But Father, we stop. And when we begin to contemplate the holiness of who you are, we realize without any hesitation we are exactly like Herod. Prideful, sinful, unrepentant, sensual, and Father, in the end, fearful of man and not God. But Father, we, we stop and we give you thanks, O oh God, that you extended grace to him through the preaching of John the Baptist. Father, we thank you that extend, you extended grace to John and he was able to follow you and walk with you and live a life of godliness before you because of your grace. And Father, we realize immediately, we realize, O oh God, that we have nothing except for what you have provided in your grace. Father, we thank you for what Ephesians 1 reminds us, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you that one of those things is the immense grace, your immense grace that enables us and strengthens us and equips us to live the life before you. Father, we pray, plead with you, O God, for Casey Bible Church. Father, we pray that we would be men and women who are on our faces before you on a regular basis, seeking more of your grace, seeking forgiveness for sin as we become aware of it, Father, and striving in the strength that you provide to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Oh God, we would be a godly people. We would be known, oh God, of having love one for another. We would be known, oh God, to those outside of this place as loving each other, as living in holiness and righteousness, not to win a name for KC Bible Church, but Father, that we might win glory for your name and glorify you in everything we do. Father, we seek your help and we seek your blessing and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.